We're going to be reading starting in at verse 20. And as you're turning there, just setting up what's happening here. This is the time of the prophets, two kingdoms. There's been no rain in the country for three years, a drought. There are 450 prophets of Baal and King Ahab going against Elijah. Elijah says, meet me at Mount Carmel and we'll settle this. Starting in verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah, uh, let's jump down, and, and this is a section where Elijah tells him to put water on his sacrifice. Then coming down to verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And friends, uh, keep your Bibles open or your mobile devices, and let's move 
to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. This particular psalm is called an enthronement psalm. It has a lot of similarity to Psalm 29, and it also has a lot of similarity to the psalm that David was given credit for in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. In fact, there are some places in 1 Chronicles 16 and in Psalm 96 where, I mean, it's almost word for word uh, in, in uh, the exact same wording and phraseology. There are a lot of people who believe that Psalm 96 as an enthronement psalm may well have been used, it might have been read, it might have been sung on an annual basis when the people of Israel would go to the temple and worship and they would reenact placing God as first place in their life and making him the official king of their life. So this could have been one of the hymns that was sung or one of the poems that was read that commemorated the kingship of God. Now notice as the psalm begins, and you're going to follow along with me, that we're invited three times right off the bat to sing. We're invited to sing as a part of our worship. And then we're invited to praise, proclaim, and declare. This is really also an evangelistic kind of psalm that invites the people to share the good news of their God. <clears throat> well, follow along with me. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. And then we get to a place in the psalm where we are invited to pay attention to the false gods and the real God of the world. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, there are only a few of you, as I look around this morning, who would remember Oakmont's second pastor before me, Gordon Conklin. 
And I'll never forget the time that Gordon told me a story about officiating a wedding many years ago. He said that on the Friday night rehearsal, the groomsmen were having a discussion among themselves about what position to hold their hands during the wedding ceremony the following day. Should they hold their hands out front? Should they put their hands behind them? Or should they hold their hands by their side? And in the course of that debate, the wedding director, as she should have done, stepped in and she gave them the instructions for the next day. She made the call. She said, you're going to hold your hands out front. In fact, you're going to take your right hand, you're going to put it over your left hand, and you're going to do just like this, that whole wedding ceremony. Well, the next day it came time for the wedding, and Pastor Conklin said that he noticed that all of the groomsmen, groomsmen during the whole ceremony were kind of doing like this. They do like this for a minute, and then they do it like that. Then they do it like this, and then they do it like that. Then they put them out front for a few more minutes, and then they put them out back behind. And after the ceremony was over with, he caught one of those groomsmen. He, he said, what's up? I mean, the wedding director, you asked the question last night. She told you that, you know, the right hand over the left hand, you hold it out front. How come you were doing like this the whole ceremony? And the groomsman confessed. He says, well, to tell you the truth, we forgot. We forgot whether it was going to be out front or behind. And so we just decided that we'd get it right half the time. <laughs> so they did like that, the whole ceremony. I'm, I'm just kind of wondering with you this morning, is it enough just to get your relationship right with God half of the time? Is it enough? Is it enough to love the Lord your God just 30% of the time? Or even 75% of the time? I mean, in one of the great scriptures of our faith, love the Lord your God with 50% of your heart. Isn't that what he says? Love the Lord your God with all, A-L-L, all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbors, you love yourself. Is it enough to be loyal to God and to serve Him just a certain percentage of the time? Can we give ourselves a pass and just realize that, hey, it's okay if we only do it part of the time? Well, you know, the Bible is full of reminders, including the text that we read from Psalm this morning, about the importance of having a little bit better track record than just 30% or even 50% of the time. God wants us to be all that he's created us to be and all he's designed us to be. He wants us to get it right all of the time. Now, we're human beings and we won't get it right all the time, but that's the goal, isn't it? That we strive to get it right in our relationship with him and that we guard ourselves against the other things and the other people and the other activities of life that would compete for the rightful place of God and if we're not careful, we can elevate those other things and people and activities into God's themselves. The Bible's full of reminders about not having other gods. I want to put a full, few things on the screen for you this morning just to show you a few examples from the Bible. And the first one begins in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible that, that gives us the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. I, I'm going to give you a hint about... What do you think of the first two commandments of the ten? Hint, hint, look on the screen. 
<laughs> you, you shall have, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. Commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Now, why was that the first two of the Ten Commandments? Because the people lived, they were indigenous uh, there were wanderers among indigenous people who already had gods before they showed up in, in the lands that they were in. And so the tendency was to take, for the people of Israel, was to take the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and in pyramid fashion kind of make him the top number one God, but to allow room and space for some of these other gods that they had learned about and met and started to believe in and gave credibility to and placed hope and value in. Now, you know what we call that? When you put God, number one, but you still allow space and place for the competition of your loyalty and your love to other gods? There's, there's a big word for that. It's called henotheism. H-E-N-O. Henotheism. We'll keep God number one, but I'm still going to allow some space and place to worship other gods. Now, look at the next scripture. Uh, we have Joshua in chapter 24. Joshua is coming to the time that he realizes of his death. He's going to pass on the baton. And this is what he says to the people, because he wants them to renew their covenant of loyalty and faithfulness to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with 50% of your faithfulness. Is that what it said? With all, A-L-L, -L, of your faithfulness. And look at this next sentence. Throw away the gods. Your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. See that henotheism at work? I can have these other gods that I kind of give some attention to every once in a while, but yeah, I'll kind of say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, is the number one God. He's the chief God, top God. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But then Joshua makes quite a proclamation here, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then we get to the scripture that we read here a minute ago for our Old Testament lesson out of 1 Kings chapter 18. And remember, we haven't had rain for several years. There's a drought going on. And the people, Ahab the king, and 450 prophets to the god Baal, the god of rain and fertility. And Elijah's trying to help them to see that if they worship that god, they're going to get zero rain. So he sets up this contest on the top of Mount Carmel and he asks the people and the 450 prophets of Baal, how long will you waver between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the very first sentence, how long will you waver between two different opinions, could, could be translated in the Hebrew, how long will you go on hopping from leg to leg? Now, there's some biblical interpreters who believe that what Elijah may have been asking the people is the following question and issue. The people believed that there was this god of death called Mot, M-O-T. And when a drought came, and there'd been no rain for a long period of time, 
the people believed that the God of death, Mot, came and killed off Baal, the God of fertility and rain. So here they're so desperate for rain that they're going to do this ritualistic dance, this worship dance, to bring Baal back to life. So he'll give them rain and fertility of the land. So it's almost like Elijah is anticipating this ritual dance that the people's going to do, and he's asking them, how long are you going to be hopping from leg to leg? How long are you going to try to do this dance to bring old Baal back to life? Don't you know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the real God? Then we go to a scripture for a second here out of Matthew. This is Jesus, Matthew chapter 6. And he says to his disciples, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And in this particular case, Jesus is talking about the God of money and how that has the tendency to seduce us and to wrap itself around us and to make us think that it's the end all. And then the very last scripture I want to show you real quickly here is the very last verse of 1 John chapter 5, of the entire letter of 1 John, and it's in chapter 5, verse 21. And the writer, I just think this is fascinating, he ends his letter by saying, Dear children, keep yourselves from what? Idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Thank you for putting that scripture on the screen. Now folks, let's be honest with one another. There's not a lot that's changed since the days of the writing of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, since the days of Joshua, since the days of the writer of the psalmist, since the days of the writer that tells us the story about Elijah, since the days of Jesus, and since the days of the writer of 1 John. There's not much that's changed. There is still a lot of people and things and events and activities that compete for your time and your energy and your passion and your money and mine too. And if we're not careful, they can sneak up on us and without our even realizing it, we become practicing henotheist. We keep the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob kind of in first place, but we let the other gods infiltrate our lives and take over in ways that we would not imagine. It's really easy for you and I to snicker with these knowing smiles and to say, oh, we'd never be so foolish as to worship a god Baal and believe that he brings rain and fertility to the land. We know better than that. We're not going to embrace that ancient mindset. But folks, I'm, I'm convinced. You and I together. I mean, I'm, I'm just as guilty. Every one of us in this room are practicing henotheist. We, we've let other things sneak in and begin to infiltrate and take over our lives. What are some of those things? Well, one area is the God of work and vocation. And the money that we earn from our work and our vocation and the incessant consumerism that marks so much of American life. Now, don't hear me wrong. I mean, I, I think God gives us our work and our vocation and we should receive it as a gift. And 
We should celebrate the money that we earn because it does help us to take care of ourselves and our families, and certainly it helps us to be generous givers and sacrificial givers in taking care of others who are not as blessed as we are. But folks, I'm going to tell you what. There are a lot of people in this world who worship their jobs, and they think it's the end all, and they think the dollar bill is the end all, and it's, it hasn't any longer become what we need. It has become what we want. The, the, the God of work and the God of money and the God of consumerism can wrap itself, its tentacles around your life in a heartbeat. And it can fool you into actually believing that it's okay to kind of get that God pretty close to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Elijah, Joshua, Jesus, and the writer of 1 John and the writer of the Psalms. What's another God? Some of you are not going to like this God I'm going to name. It's the God of sports and athletics. Now don't get me wrong. I love to play sports and athletics and I love to watch it on television. But if you don't believe that the gods of sports and athletics have wrapped its tentacles around the American society, just show up at a little league baseball game. You don't even have to go to middle school ball. You don't even have to go to high school ball. You don't even have to go to college or professional ball. Just start down at the little league. And sometimes it's not the players. It's the mamas and the daddies and the coaches that think it becomes the God. And again, don't get me wrong. I am an avid tennis player, and I love to watch sports on television. But... The gods of athletics and sports can wrap their tentacles around us. And if you don't think the god of money is not involved in that, you know what controls college athletics today and professional athletics? It's ESPN and money. And before you know it, it's going to get down to the high school and the middle school level. What are some of the other gods that we struggle with? How about the media? Man, you've got to be careful when you walk on the sidewalk today. Somebody's got their phone going to have a head-on collision with you. Man, we're checking the internet, the email, and we're not even paying attention where we're going. The God of films, the God of television, the God of books, the God of magazines, the God of the internet. It would be an interesting thing for you to do to just kind of Pay attention to how much time you do spend on your smartphone and on your tablet or your iPad or your computer. That, that's not necessarily work-related. Checking Facebook, check, checking email. If something has got control of your life, folks, you've got to understand it has become your God. If it runs the show, it's your God. How about the God of our educational achievements and our intellect and our knowledge. While we've learned as much or more than God, we don't need to open up His Word and study it. We've got the game plan. We don't need Him. For some people, they struggle with the God of addictions. It's the God of alcohol. It's the God of drugs. It's the God of prescription meds. It's the God of food. It's the God of tobacco. It's the God of pornography. There's a lot of God. You don't think you've got some gods in your life? You need to double check again. And we do have a rampant sexuality in our country, in our world, in our society that goes overboard when it comes to things like the body and physical appearances. 
because we got to look right, right? We got to have the right hairstyle, we got to have the right jewelry and the right makeup, the right tie and the and the shirt and the pants and the shoes and the dress and the slacks and the shorts and the car. I mean, I want to look good when I drive in my car, don't you? There's all sorts of gods out there that we think are not present, but they have their tentacles wrapped around us. We've even made some gods out of some of our religious symbols. Some of those symbols that are designed to deepen our faith and add meaning to our faith, if we're not careful, we, we almost elevate the symbol above the worship of God himself. I was talking to somebody not too long ago that was bemoaning the fact that we don't start every day in the, school, in the public school system with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and prayers to God in Jesus' name. We want prayer in public schools and we want prayer in public gatherings and meetings. But what's so interesting is that after the prayer is over, if it got offered, we have no intention whatsoever of really asking for God's guidance or direction or for His will to be done after the prayer is said. There are a lot of us that want the Bible or the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer displayed in public, prominent places as long as the truths of those scriptures don't have to be written into the fabric of our life or into the crevices of our hearts and souls. Yeah, I want to see the Ten Commandments, I just don't want to follow them. There are a lot of us that want the waters of baptism on our body or we want the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper on our lips, but we're not going to use that body or those lips for one moment to be missional Christians, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community, and we're not going to open our lips and share with someone how to become a Christian. We're not going to be a contagious Christian. We're not going to walk across the room and build a relationship with someone and win the opportunity to share Jesus with them. And there's a lot of us that want to wear a cross around our necks, but don't you talk to me for a moment about sacrifice or servanthood. I don't want to hear about it. Now, how are we going to get out of this mess? Folks, we have, God's people have created a mess. How are we going to get out of it? How are we going to change and, and really rid ourselves of this henotheistic thinking that we can let all these other gods compete with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the other great biblical writers? How, how are we going to get out of this mess? Well, there are a couple ways. Number one, you know, we can make an intentional decision that we're just not going to live that way any longer. But that doesn't work for most people. Because that's too easy. You and I like the hard route. We like the hard road. We like to go at it at the difficult way. And the difficult way often means that people see the greatest changes in their lives at the point of their deepest pain. Did you know that? People make, some often, not always, but many times people make the most significant changes in their lives at the point of their deepest pain. When the pain of sin gets deep enough and hurts bad enough, you're willing to change. And the fact of the, 
of the matter is we've accumulated all of these multiple gods that give competition, they compete with our time, our affections, our attention, our, our money, our energies, our passion. We've assembled all these gods around us, and you know what? They haven't delivered on their promises. They promise, promised us that we were, we were going to find satisfaction and happiness and success in life, but yet there's an empty core on the inside of who we are, and we've realized these gods that we've surrounded ourselves around us, they're not delivering. And so the pain of sin has deepened, and that's when change occurs. See, often, if you have somebody that you know and love and they're in pain, the first thing you want to do is you want to be a fixer and you want to remove the pain. And sometimes that's the worst thing you can do for someone. Sometimes what you need to do is deepen the pain, and that's when the change comes. A lot of you will recall that time in Oakmont's history when we did three worship services on Sunday morning. 8, 29, 40, and 11 o'clock in the old sanctuary before we built this sanctuary. We did it for six years and one month. And, you know, pastors always pray, God, let me be sick any time of the week, but don't let it start on Saturday night and don't let it continue through Sunday morning. Please, God. And I remember in the course of doing those three worship services, that one Saturday night, I started to feel just a little bit of an ache in one of my teeth. So I went to bed and I got up the next morning and the tooth still was kind of sore and it wasn't throbbing, but I could tell it was hurting. And I remember preaching those three services that Sunday morning with some meds I had taken, and I would get a cup of, I got a cup of ice, and I'd take a little chip of ice and lodge it next to that sore tooth because it was just starting to hurt. And as we got into Sunday afternoon and Sunday night, it was hurting more. And by, by Monday morning, I was in my dentist's office, and there was an x-ray taken. You've got a crack tooth. I think you're going to have to have a root canal. I made a call over to the... Um, Another oral surgeon in town who kind of specialized in root canals. He's got an opening this morning. Would, would you like to go? Would I like to go? Let's hope and pray I don't get a speeding ticket on the way over to that surgery. And, and I got in the door of the office. And, you know, they wanted me to fill out a little bit of paperwork. And, and then they said before I went back, they said, you know, our, our usual custom, if you're able to do this, our usual custom uh, is to collect the full amount of the procedure up front. And I mean, in record time, my credit card came out of my back pocket and I threw it on the counter, take the credit card. What else do you need? You can have my firstborn child. I don't care. I want to get out of this pain. It's amazing what a deep dissatisfaction, what a deep disappointment, what a deep sense of guilt from sin and willful or maybe unwillful, un unintentional rebellion against God will do to, to create this sense of unhappiness and God, I don't want it any longer. Pain is an amazing change agent. 
And what I want you to understand is that these biblical writers were full-fledged, 100% human beings just like you. Even though their life circumstances may have been a little different, they were human beings, and they understand pain. They understand the futility of wandering away from God and getting disconnected and embracing other gods that did not deliver on the promises made. Lord knows we have plenty of people to make promises to us and they break those promises. And these gods broke their promises to the biblical writers and they're breaking their promises to you too. So I want to end this morning in the way that I began. Is it enough? Is it enough just to get it right with your relationship with God just half of the time? Is it enough just to have your hands up here and then your hands back here and then your hands up here and then your hands back here? Is it enough just to love God 40% of the time? Is it just enough to serve Him 60% of the time? Is it enough to make him number one just 10% of the time. My dad told me years ago, and, and he would repeat it a whole lot as I was growing up, he told me that if you walk in the middle of the road, you're bound to get run over. And at some point you have to make a choice and decide who your real God is and who you're going to make number one. Who gets the loyalty? Who gets the love? Who gets the service? Who gets the commitment? And so that's the question for all of us today. Are we going to continue being practicing Henothenus, theist, or are we going to do like Joshua said? As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Friends, we come to a time in our worship 